0: This episode of All the President's Men is brought to you by another one-heat-minute production on our feed, Increment Vice, hosted by Travis Woods, our narrator, Kat Corbett, and myself, Blake Howard, have brought to you 45 episodes unpacking, scene-by-scene, Paul Thomas Anderson's incredible film, Inherent Vice. We've just completed the series. Travis has done a monumental work of cinephilia, deep-diving the entire film over many, 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 many months. 45 episodes in 12 months from November 1st to October 31st, spanning the whole of 2020 and how the film has mutated in our conception over that time. Uh, I'm really proud to have produced it. I'm immensely proud to have worked with Travis and Kat along the way. And uh, we've had so many phenomenal guests, uh, including the incredible Ryan Johnson and just so many people we admire Drew McWeeny, Walter Chaw, Matt Solisites, uh, Angelica J. Bastian. Um, get along to it and listen. But now, another episode of all the president's minutes
1: we have never seen really other than i don't think we've ever seen anything like this from a president of the united states and uh, i think as jake said it is it's sad and it is truly pathetic and of course it is dangerous and of course it will go to courts, but you'll notice the president did not have any evidence presented at all. Nothing. No real, actual evidence uh, of any kind of fraud. He talked about people putting up papers in windows. He talked about things that he'd seen on the Internet. That is the president of the United States. That is the most powerful person in the world, and we see him like an obese turtle on his back flailing in the hot sun, realizing his time is over but he just hasn't accepted it and he wants to take everybody down with him, including this country.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. And look, it's the 118th minute of Alan J. Pakula and Robert Redford's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men, that we're talking about today. And it's the never-ending election (laughs) that I'm now talking to. This is the first person I'm talking to. I was hoping that this man would be the first American that I get to speak to at the end of the election or after the results of the election were known. I've already spoken to two Australian comedians uh, in one episode where we're still in the midst of the election. And now, right now, it is 5.13 a.m. Australian time. It is 10 a.m. His time. No one has slept. It's been days of just unrelenting craziness. But... I wouldn't have it any other way. He's an extremely talented um, individual. He started out life writing for places like cigarettes and red vines, being a true movie fan. I think we have a great kinship there. Um, he's the creator of the cinephile game, which my box is on my desk sitting in front of me. Uh, he's created little cinephile and his family has done one of the greatest cosplays in the history of mankind for Halloween. Um, and I, and I'm just, I was so thrilled to get a chance to talk to him for this show, but it is a wild time. So just bear with both of us right now. I think is probably the best thing that I can ask of anyone. Corey Everett, thank you so much for being a part of all the President's Minutes. Uh, Thanks for having me.
2: It is a very wild time. Um, If we had taped this uh, a day or two ago, uh, it would probably be a different conversation. When I watched the movie a couple days ago again, Different things were on my mind and and uh, yeah, it just feels like um, there's a there's a current I feel like in in the air, even as we're all kind of in, in our siloed houses, <laughs> it just feels like something big is about to happen and um, and I think uh, it's very exciting and strange to have this feeling after four
0: years and who would have thought? Fox News has been calling this election essentially <laughs> faster than anyone else. It's absolutely insane. Like they called Arizona first. They called other states first. I had to do a bit of doubling back with the Georgia situation because that looks so much more emphatic in the uh, towards Trump early on. But uh, I think it's so funny to watch people in a normal election year be so... I don't know that. Like it's it's almost like the first review of a film, you know, out of a film festival or something. Like you usually see media outlets clamoring to be the first to say something, and in this election, especially as it's gotten towards the business end, it's like no one wants to be the first. No one wants to call it, and it's like, yeah. I, I mean, even two seconds before, I think a mutual acquaintance of ours on Twitter, Brianna Ashby, who's the terrific artist um, for Brightwall Dark Room publication. Brianna's like call it all caps, and I, she, she's probably just one of like ten people right now that that are saying something like that.
2: Uh, another
0: Halloween costume uh, legend, oh. I, I would add. Oh, <laughs> just 100. from what I've seen. Oh yeah, Han Solo, the Han Solo Princess Leia with her daughter is yeah, that's a, that's an old timer as well. Incredible. aspirational yeah. stuff.
2: Um, as far as the not making the thing, it's because the stakes are so high and uh trust um in the media obviously after the last couple years it's been so eroded and so much hangs in the balance of making any kind of call uh that might have to be retracted or to have you know to say it looks like it's going this way and have the totals add up slightly differently and have 70 million people point to that as the reason why they'll never believe a word out of that outlet and you know some people, I'm sure, have their minds made up, regardless. But I think the institutions themselves are being extra careful and knowing um how much hangs in the balance and that they can't get it wrong. And as much as the financial incentive might be there to be the first ones to make the call, um, everybody's hanging back because they don't want to screw it up. and you know, kind kind of good for them as much as it's been excruciating, um, you know, the waiting and the the not quite knowing and, 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 you know, you look at the other side and go, Oh, well, the more time that he has to um, kind of rile people up to say this isn't right without it having been called, you know, the more dangerous a situation you could be creating. But, you know, so I, I don't really know what the answer is, but it feels like we're a, about to have the breakthrough of you know the light at the end of the tunnel
0: um one of the great friends of this show um you know him too bilga Ibiri has already recorded one of the final episodes of the series i won't sort of spoil uh, this is the first time i'm sort of saying it uh, aloud on the show and when we recorded it just because of the timing he said wait is this coming out before or after the election <laughs> <laughs> and i said after and at the time i was like many days after you know kind of in the teens of november you know even the 20th and he's like oh god you might have to call me back and mm-hmm. like get like a an addendum like a little coda you know just speak for 5 minutes about how i'm feeling cuz we had a bit of a funny conversation so if folks are listening to this now hopefully you have a result i'm hoping that by the time you hear this but it's just good context and i think it's so funny this entire process has been ludicrous to me in so many ways um uh, uh, you know not the election i mean the process of all the president's men and all the president's minutes because the minute that we're talking about is literally an editor and his team agonizing over whether they have enough to tell a story and mm. the implications of telling that story And absolutely, they are on the front foot and they're first. But what, and right now, I would imagine newsrooms like the New York Times and the actual post themselves and the big publications and the TV stations going like, we're not going to call it. We're just going to say it's all there until someone actually makes an official call in each of these states from the elected officials, because that's where we're going to go. So they become the source. It's going to echo around. It's too hostile a situation. And so as the team paces around and argues whether they've got the right sources, I think it's just hilarious that that's today what we're talking about while no one is brave enough to actually come out and say, I think what everyone knows to essentially be a fact, which is that Donald Trump has lost the election, which is kind of insane. So we'll uh, we'll have to see how that plays out for you, my friend, in the next little bit.
2: Yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, exactly i keep the instinct to go god i wonder if it's going to happen while we're taping this you know yeah, not that it'll I, matter for those people listening but um I, I will refrain from from checking
0: i i i think we can we can take a quick pause a uh, quick pause break if uh, if anything does break we can definitely go um and uh, i know a lot of the folks you know some some of the guests on the show and some people are are poised over different kinds of alcoholic beverages and, and waiting waiting for that time that they can just crack these bad boys open so good luck to all of you <laughs> at whatever time of day it turns out to be that you can crack them open and <laughs> of many hours you haven't slept good luck um let's talk about you as a film fan first and foremost i mean you're the creator of the cinephile game um i, I know you've preemptively apologized to me that michael mann wasn't in your a uh, little cinephile book that I was so lucky enough to <laughs> to to see an advanced copy of and, and to share with my kids. But I don't I think many people have said it, and I, I think it's probably you would agree, you can't talk about seventies cinema without talking about political paranoia, you know, paranoia thrillers or political thrillers. And you can't talk about the nineteen seventies without talking about all the president's men and about Alan J. McCooler. So can you tell me a little bit about, as a as a sort of cinephile who's probably more steeped in the era and uh, and and I guess the big sort of totemic directors of the era than probably even me? Like, ha, ha, was Pakula a guy of yours, or was he? Always this enigma that just like dropped three of the most influential films right in the pocket of the '70s, and then did these other sort of things that popped up in his career. Um the latter honestly and that was something
2: that uh, did occur to me uh when i was rewatching this so um this movie is one that um i've seen a couple times uh in my life but it isn't a movie i grew up with it isn't it wasn't one of my big movies yes. um so i think for me you know born in the early 80s the 70s cinema um was something that I kind of discovered on my own in college when I would sort of compile lists. You know, I would, I would cross-check the Sight and Sound list and the AFI Top 100 and the, you know, kind of the EW list or whatever was available. And I literally would look at all these different lists, see the movies that would appear the most often and kind of make my own Word document of like, these are the movies that <laughs> I need to watch. And at that time, Um, it was kind of the Netflix will send your disc in the mail time. And so, um, it was a little bit of that. I, I would get five discs at a time and I would still sometimes run out of movies in the couple days between sending them off and waiting for the new ones. And it was also a time of, um, going to TLA Video in Philadelphia, which is a great video store. And they, you know, organized by director and have all kinds of, you know, deep cuts and hammer horror and, you know, just like a treasure trove of kind of, you know, uh, unusual and and subgenres and all this stuff. And then like the school library. And so literally like the idea that like, ooh, I can get this for free, or ooh, this is playing on Turner Classic Movies at three in the morning, let me try and tape it or stay up or whatever, was kind of how I filled in the canon for myself. I didn't go to film school. Um I went to school for uh, animation because I like to draw. Um but I ended up kind of learning, you know, a little bit about editing and video production and all that stuff, you know, as part of that curriculum. Um, but sort of film history was something I just took upon myself because, you know, I've loved movies since I was a kid. I'm sure like anybody listening to this, um, but yeah, so All the Prison's Men is a movie I probably hadn't seen in close to 20 years. Um, so I, you know, watched it in preparation for this podcast and, um, and it brought up a couple questions. Um, you know, one of them was kind of, as you posed, which is, um, Pakula, kind of why why is why aren't there t-shirts with his name <laughs> on it? You know, why didn't he quite get the same, you know, and yeah. you know, now as someone who, you know, so I I have this Cinephile card game, and part of the idea with the game was to sort of um not always highlight the canon but kind of go the one step deeper to appeal to real film nerds and so instead of
0: one, seeing one, you know or 35 steps deeper when you're talking <laughs> about Bruce Willis performances on on video on demand services that no one has ever heard of you right. can, you could it's just layer after layer after layer
2: yeah but even with the like um you know, you're going to do an Al Pacino card, like the obvious choices would be Scarface or The Godfather, whatever. But instead, let's throw in Cruising, you know, something that kind of has like a film nerd cult following, but would not be one of the first three things that you would think of, unless you are someone who is really into film and thus listening to this podcast. So like, (laughs) I, I just basically made the game like anyone can play. But I want, you know, when an obsessive film nerd like myself picks this up, I want them to flip over each card and go, oh, this is this is for me. This game is, you know, talking directly to me. It is not talking to, you know, your neighbor and your friend's mom and you know, people who would just look at half the deck and go, I literally, you know, I know these actors most part, but I don't know what these movies are. But I want, I wanted to speak to this. So, you know, in doing so, it was kind of interesting to sort of examine um. You know what is the canon and 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 how does that canon change over time and the idea that some of these movies that you know when I was in college going through you know what the AFI top 100 or whatever else told me to watch you know a lot of tier or whatever you would call it more obscure the kind of gems outside of the classics were like not available. You know, you could not find this stuff. You couldn't no. find the deeper Fellini cuts, you know, outside of <laughs> eight and a half. And, you know, with Dolce Vita and that stuff. So that was kind of like, you know, you'd see the top three or top five, and that was kind of what was accessible. And it's been so interesting um, to watch the canon change over time and then to even interrogate, you know, as I'm someone now, so I have this card game and now I have this book, um, which is called uh, A is for Autor. So it's an alphabet book of uh, filmmakers. And the idea that it's, uh, you know, if you like the card game, uh, if you're obsessed with movies, if you have a criterion collection on your shelf, like you're an adult, you don't have kids. This book is still for you. Like you (laughs) get it. It's beautiful. You put it it on your coffee table.
0: If you're a vulgar or tourist, you will love it whether you have kids or not. (laughs) Just for the, right. just as we would happily call, I would happily call myself, I don't know if, God, if Corey's happy to call himself, but it's like, that's what my uh, my other film nerd friends call us vulgar or tourists, basically, you would love it.
2: Right, and so hopefully it's a thing that, you know, it's just kind of a beautiful coffee table book, you know, and each uh, page kind of has an illustration um, by my uh, friend, the illustrator, Steve Isaacs, who also did the game, uh, amazingly talented guy. Um, and did illustrations, which are essentially, you know, a portrait of the director and then a kind of mural behind them of imagery from all their different movies. And so, you know, it's kind of for, you know, adults, uh, but it's also for, if you're kind of, you know, a crazy person like me who actually has a three-year-old, um, I read this book to him. And so now he can name, you know, the 26 directors in the book <laughs> and he knows Spike Jones and Catherine Bigelow and Agnes Barda. And like, by looking at them, um, he can identify them and we can talk uh, about that. And then when we I,
0: watched, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say my, my favorite one that my daughter says is Fellini. Fellini. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just the, just it, it came when you're just going through, you know, with the three year well, old, funny the word that the, whatever the word is or whatever my daughter's three, two, she's about to turn four, but it's like that word that just gets her Fellini. That's Fellini. Right. It's, like she won't remember nearly as many of the others quite yet, but Fellini, she likes it because of the way that it, sounds when she says it it's and, very very like, very cute like i get that there's something a
2: little bit like tongue-in-cheek about that and obviously what can you really teach a toddler about you know one of these you know french new wave auteurs sure <laughs> i get that and yet i kind of didn't want to stop at the joke like i didn't want it just to be f is for Pavlini. so kind of in making the book i kind of as with the game wanted to um basically put as much care and attention to detail in the book as uh, I did with the game. And so that, you know, a, a film nerd uh, who is a parent, who's reading it, it kind of has a doctor Susie rhyming scheme. So it's fun to read, even if you have no idea what it's talking about, but it's basically, you know, the book has over 200 references to different movies. And so you can- I was pick just going to out- say
0: that AFI list or that compendium of lists, which I think is so relatable. And I remember being in my university library and doing that, like going to different- at that stage it was websites and printing out the lists to have physical copies of the lists, and then going to the film library at our university library which is my You know, I've had great video stores in my life, but that was my major source because I could just go in and then go into a screen, like little screening desks and take two or three of these. And if I didn't have that many classes on that day, or even if I did and I skipped them, I could just start ticking things off the list. And I think that that's one thing that's so beautiful of A is for auteur is because it's, and everything you do with Little Cinefile, all the merch and everything like that is. it does start out with that joke, but it's that list. Like if you went and ticked, there's some things I haven't seen in that list. There's some things I haven't seen in that list. I'm like, you know, right. I need to, I'm like, oh, I need to get that VADA criterion collection because I haven't seen that. I need that. Right. And so, and I was doing that. And so if I'm doing that, uh, the three-year-old's not doing that by the way, but hopefully when she's a bit older, I can turn her into a at least one of my kids. I'm going for a real proper film snob. I really, <laughs> I think that's an aspiration for all of us. It was just one corrupting at least one of your children to, to, to be that little cinephile.
2: Yeah, and I think like, you know, it would have been easier to kind of stop at the joke, but the idea that, you know, the real love of film and and the depth of film, you know, references and culture and everything that's in the book, hopefully will come through. And for the most part, the response, you know, people like you that I've sent around early copies to um, have been, ha- have gotten it basically. And have been like, oh, I-, I completely get what this is. I see how it works on both levels, whatever. But kind of, you know, to zoom all the way back out is to go, um, you know, as bubbles up conversation online recently is kind of like, you know, are we sure about auteurs? And, you know, does that <laughs> diminish the contributions the other people who work on movies and, and who makes the canon, all these things? And so just in terms of even putting out this book or this game, feeling somewhat of a responsibility to go, you know, um, who who is in this canon? You know, if it's an alphabet book and you've got, you know, the letter C. Um, I, we have Francis Ford Coppola, hard to argue with that, Mm. but boy, is it heartbreaking when you look at the list of people who aren't on that page and, you know, uh, Jane Campion and John Cassavetes and the Coen brothers and Sophia Coppola, who I'm wearing the girls on top shirt of (laughs) right now, um, you know, kind of an on and on. And so, you know, I get it's a children's book, it's an alphabet book, whatever, but I think in the same way, it's. It's in dialogue with film culture, and it's in dialogue with the canon in that way. And and I think, you know, a lot of um, the choices and a lot of the cards in the game were influenced by um, some of the repertory programming, the Metrograph and the Alamo Draft House, and things that maybe weren't as talked about in when I was in college, and have kind of been dusted off and rediscovered and and held up on the shelf. You know, when I was in college. Agnes Barda certainly was someone who was known, but I I did not see her discussed in the same breath with Fellini and Goddard and Truffaut. Um, it seemed more like she was on, you know, Eric Romer uh, and yes. um, um, Jacques Demy and kind of, you know, I don't want to say second tier, but not quite as revered as some of those other auteurs. However, that has changed. And, and you know, you look at the Criterion set and you look at the conversation and and, you see that the canon is mutable, um,
0: and, and also even with someone like Varda, and, and for us, and those great, those great. Whether it's like small, uh, this whether it's a smaller boutique Blu-ray label or a massive one like Criterion, which has such an influence, or just now there's actually a lot of sort of what were second tier but are now like emerging as these great contributors to archiving great works of cinema all around the place, like in different places, so you can catch this stuff. But I remember seeing The Gleaners and I, I don't know, like 20 years ago, I, I want to say just a couple of, and it's one of the most amazing documentaries I've ever seen. She's such an, she's just so, lo- she's one of the most lovable entities that has ever existed on the face of the earth. And you just so, you love her. So immediately the moment you see it, but that was like the only Varda film that was available in Australia for right. so long. So it's like, I love her. What else has she done? And you may be able to get one other film, but it's like now, Many years later, you're like, oh, right. okay. It's it's actually, sometimes it's access and then being able to curate a list. And even back to Alan Pakula, his top three films that people would say, uh, you know, his biggest contribution to cinematic canon are Clute, Parallax View, and All the President's Men. And then there are other you know, his second tiers, each director has their own second tier films. Um, you know, the Presumed Innocence of the World and the Pelican Brief and Comes a Horseman. Some of those are really readily available. Comes a Horseman is not in Australia. It is nowhere to be found. You have to have a v- you know, VPN or a US iTunes to even hire the damn thing. And like so many of his movies are there. So I think it's a massive thing about access and time. And that's why, you know, it's, it's for me especially, it's one of those things where you go, if you can't even put together a whole director's set of their films to appraise it and look at it where it sits in 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 relation to other films that are being made at that time or by other filmmakers. It's so hard to like actually make a, a choice of like, actually, you know, this person is making really important films that we need to sort of stop and appraise properly.
2: Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. Some of it is access and just what was kind of available or what is available. and And even in terms of kind of... Um, you know, when Criterion was starting out on DVD, um, they were releasing a lot of kind of uh, movies maybe that weren't the canon, that were not the AFI top 100, were not the sight and sound top 10. You were not gonna get those movies. You were getting something else. And now part of that may be that they believe that these movies deserve to be in that conversation. Part of it, Part of it may have been logistical in terms of Warner Brothers or whoever saying, you can't have Casablanca. We can make money on that. So,
0: you know. You can't have Citizen Kane, ever.
2: Exactly. right? (laughs) They're never giving
0: Citizen Kane.
2: (laughs) And kind of through doing that, you know, the cult of Criterion ended up discovering and elevating all of these lesser known works through their association with the brand. you see them get into a lot more kind of classic American and 40s and screwball comedies and stuff that they really weren't releasing as much in the earlier days, but it's just even interesting to look at how that shapes the canon. In terms of Pakula, you know, one of the things for me that, you know, was my education on seventy, uh, 70 cinema, for, and for a lot of people, uh, Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, which was, yeah. you know, uh, so so influential and Day so play. formative. And and I, every film book that I read, you know, and I've read possibly hundreds, most of what I read is nonfiction and most of the nonfiction is about fil- film. Fil- and I feel like I'm chasing the high I got from that book with anything else I read. And so, you know, you can look at that book and who does it leave out and what narratives is it creating? What myths is it propping up? But is But in terms of, you know, telling this story and creating that narrative around these counterculture guys and how they you know stormed Hollywood. Um, it's guys like Pakula who aren't really a part of that narrative, who nice. then even though if you just took it by the work and you stack, you know, those three movies in the 70s, he would be on the top tier with a lot of these, you know, other guys, the Scorsese's and the Coppolas. And it's kind of, you know, a little bit through omission and maybe a little bit through, you know, what he went on to do. You know, later in his career, where people might look at him more of a, a middle of the road or you know a, a studio guy. And goddamn, I will just say, you know, watching all the presidents spend the other night, um, I was just struck with the filmmaking, and I was struck with how bold the choices are, and how it is in no way a movie that stylistically um, is playing it safe.
0: No, and it's. There's a hilarious interview just to see the comparisons of people from the Dick Cavett show. Like, so YouTube folks is just a treasure trove for these great interviews in the 70s shows with great filmmakers that you can find. And I got pointed to this one. It is an interview um, with Sidney Pollock, Sidney Lumet, Alan J. Pakula, Ivan Reitman. And there's Doris Dory, who's like a first-time German filmmaker. Like, you know, the suckiest thing for her ever is like one of these things is not like the other. She made like a breakout indie movie and she's sitting on this panel. And I would even not quite, you know, Ivan Reitman, who's a huge populist, made huge movies. He's not, he's like also like what two of these things aren't like the others when you consider the the kind of films that are making. But Pollock Lumet and Pakula are sitting there together, and Pakula reminds me a lot of Lumet because Lumet's such a very workmanlike craftsman and very pragmatic and doesn't seem to get too much into the, the weeds of the artistry and the mania and the craziness, but is such an absolute well of insight and just is a kind of genius tier filmmaker and has made some of the greatest movies ever. But, McCool is just kind of a guy who started in the industry. He's very erudite. He's sophisticated. He loves working with actors. He loves collaborating and having the best people around him. He doesn't seem to have that same kind of cultish, obsessive, and also like egomaniacal persona of like, I'm the artist and I know exactly what I'm doing. He's like, no, I've got the best production designer in the world. I work with Gordon Willis. I love working with actors. What they can do is so great. And it's like, man, this guy is the ultimate collaborator. Like he's the, he's, you know, in, even in the two major projects we've done on one heat minute productions, Michael Mann was the central topic of so much of what he talked about because he has a as this obsessive force in the best possible way and such a had such a laser focus and such a cl- clarity of vision as a director. But so much of this project all the president's men, is done the inverse. It's talking about goldman's scaffolding and the essential like you know, hallmarks of this script that kind of break all the rules, but also sometimes adhere to them or rewrite them. And then Willis's photography and then Pakula's direction. And then what the actors actually do in the scenes, in the spaces, and then the production design. It doesn't ever feel like this has been a whole Pakula show. It just doesn't feel like that in the dialogue because that's the way that is. it is. And watching these guys interact, they definitely see him as a peer. But if someone had said, you know, Lumet and Pollock, even before, and then Bakula, it's like, God, oh, is Bakula that good? And it's like, yeah, he really is. He's that good. He's made, you know, like the, the reason that the C in your book is Coppola is because between 1972 and 79, four of the greatest American films were made by one person. Right. You know, maybe four right. in the top 10 American films of all time Godfather, Part Two, Godfather One, Part Two, Conversation, and Apocalypse Now, all made by the same person in that stretch. And that's like the undeniable almost like that is an unassailable feat to ever replicate. And so it's like, but at the same time, Clute, Parallax, and then all the president's men, um, three different expressions of this, you know, same anxiety. Um, You know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty sweet little triple.
2: It absolutely is. It's funny you mentioned Sidney Lumet, because that was the other director that kind of popped into my head as I was watching this and just thinking, like, I don't see any Sidney Lumet shirts. Uh, (laughs) But I feel like if Dog Day Afternoon somehow were on Scorsese's filmography in the early 70s, people would talk a lot more about the movie. And part of it is just a function of, you know, the kind of which directors are we looking at that way if, you know... um, Kula had slept with a revolver under his pillow and been a hippie <laughs> and smoked weed on the set. You know, would we look at him in a different way and how much is the kind of legend or the personality or the, you know, the social club that the directors are coming in with is, is the ones that we, you know, burnish their legend, you know, a, a little harder than other ones. Because if you kind of just look at the work, um, yeah, I, I was just really struck. Cause I, 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 will admit something else, which is another kind of topic I wanted to ask you about, which is basically, um, I like all kinds of different movies, different genres, you know, um, but I will say that my least favorite, you know, type of movie is probably uh, the biopic. Now I know this is not Uh. a biopic, but just kind of underneath that and a movie genre, you know, or or type of film, not really genre, that I'm less interested in is movies based on true stories and it is not that they can't be great. Um, but it's just kind of this feeling like every year come awards time that so much of the oxygen gets taken up by the movies that are based on true stories or, are here's an actor doing a great facsimile of a person that you might know, you know, or bringing this real life person to life. Um, and yet as, you know, film history goes on. The movies that seem to stay the most alive in the culture, you know, in my view, to me, the the ones that I cherish the most, for the most part, are not those movies. Those yeah. are kind of the flashbang. You know, they're exciting when you watch them, and they just don't stick with you in the same way. They don't quite have the same, you know, repeat viewing factor. And there's just not usually as much to be found in them. Because in recounting some kind of here's a thing that happened, um, I don't know. It seems somewhat limited in being able to make a broader point, or its broader point is maybe too Sometimes simplified, they, or or something. They a, get and, too
0: they get too wedded to the facts, and yeah. so I think it's there's a you know I think I think definitely a lot of people who are listening have seen this. There's a 2010 Australian film called Animal Kingdom. It was David Michaud's. Breakout writer director, uh, film you know, kind of reintroduced the world to Mendo. Thank god we needed more Mendo in our lives, and uh, definitely Jackie Weaver's, you know, as who'd been acting in this country for you know, probably five decades, um, really kind of catapulted her into American consciousness. There, there is a basis for some of the craziness of that criminal family called the Pettingill criminal family in Melbourne, it was based in the 90s. This film has never references them once. It was an inspiration. And it's so often an example whenever I talk to anyone about that exact dichotomy, I'm like, there was no Corleone crime family. I don't care if Coppola is ripping things off relentlessly from the actual history of the Nostra, as I'm sure in many ways Puzo did. I don't care. I care about, you know, how engaged and, um, and, and and how meaningful and how what I can read into that and and maybe the different the different things that I'm sort of going through and and I would tend to agree I detest biopics to the largest extent because I also think that. They try and do too much and try and be definitive about an individual's life. It's Condensing
2: too much time tends to simplify, you know, in a way that's just not helpful. And so, you know, the kind of worst case is the glorified Wikipedia entry where you can watch and go, oh, I didn't know that's, you know, that's interesting, but there's not in the performance, man, he looked just like that person or, you know, he sounded just like him. Uh, But beyond that, it's just, they, they just don't. No do a lot and the only reason i tend to get a little bit thankful is just that reason of kind of man at the end of every year if we could just sort of remember what tends to stick with us in the long run we would spend <laughs> a lot less time focused on these movies that i just you can see it are just going to have a shorter shelf life however all that being said this is one of the exceptions to the rule yes. not biopic obviously but in terms of a real life story that is also a masterpiece and and is a classic and just trying to examine why is that what you know when the exception to the rule comes how do you scientifically break down what does this movie have that in in my opinion you know uh the post does not have spotlight does not have i like both those movies a lot i thought spotlight was really good i teared up during the post you know but those movies are not this movie and so trying to really parse why Why is that? And why is this so rare? Um, uh, the other kind of, it, as you were saying, I, you know. The, I, the think it's
0: a, I, I, wanna, I think it's a great question to ask because it's one, it's one thing. And to reference one of my favorite episodes of the whole series so far, the great Kenny Turin, Kenneth Turin, one of the seminal film critical voices of our age, came on the show. Kenny was in the culture section of the Washington Post during the events of this film. Wow. And he said he watched an anniversary screening of it. He said it was the closest thing to like being in a time machine in his life. It was one of my favorite quotes of the whole series. And when he was talking about it, he also said, when I looked up on the screen, it also taught me a great lesson. This is the first time viewing it. He was looking up at the screen. He was looking at this office, just marveling at how much it looked like the office he actually worked in. And there's Robert Redford up on screen doing the thing that he does, which is making endless calls to sources for stories and how boring it is. And he just put it so succinctly in the way that Kenny does, which just freaks you out because you're like, God, I could never be so succinct and poetic, which is right then and there, the lie, the beautiful lie of the romance of cinema was undeniable. On that massive screen was Bob Woodward, (laughs) played by Robert Redford one of the most beautiful men in the history of cinema mm-hmm. is sitting up there on a phone doing the boring thing and making it look compelling and he's mm-hmm. like it's not compelling it's not as romantic it doesn't look like that and that i think that this movie does both of those things so well it knows it's a movie it has to entertain you but it is also trying to create these crazy alchemical conditions of Locations and spaces and outfits and performers. That's like we know that the two biggest, well, two of the biggest movie stars in the whole of the 1970s or late 60s and 70s are in this movie, and that's undeniable. It's Hoffman and Redford, but it's like it it kind of just wants to dissuade you. I get so distracted with bad wigs, I get so distracted with Mm -hmm. stunt casting. Like it's like the difference between Sorkin and um, uh, Danny Boyle's jobs, which is. I think a really great attack on someone's biopic because it's, you know, three different stages, a little bit of a triptych tale, three stages of a life. And it's great. And then you go to the Ashton Kutcher, Steve jobs. And you're like, it's just stunt casting. He can't, he's can't do this guy. Like he might feel Mm -hmm. like he's got an affinity for him, but you're so distracted by how ludicrously alike they look. You're like, I can't, I can't watch this movie. This isn't a movie this is an impression this is a long snl impression like it's it's i can't do it right now and so i think that this movie dissuades you of like i don't need to get someone who looks like Bob wood i need to give you the essence of what he is and and in some things they're so relentless about no we want the trash from the space we want people to come in and mess up their desks and then other times they're like no this is a movie also we also need it to be entertaining um and and i think that there's that pragmatism that Pakula has, that Lumet has, and you hear them talking about it or you read their stuff and you're just like, man, these guys just get it. They know they're making a movie, but also they know that they have a burden of uh, you know, making that the kind of movie that can stand up to the scrutiny of other docudramas and biopics, but they, they kind of don't wed themselves to it. I'm sure that Woodward never described the underworld styles of that car park the way that Gordon Willis shoots them. Like that's the other thing this movie does. It's like the newsroom looks like the real newsroom and is there. And then Judith Hoback Miller, which, you know, the the great bookkeeper scene with Jane Alexander, that scene is shot in the real Judy Hoback Miller's house, but it just does it because Pakula wants his actors in that space and he wants to constrict his creatives to make them find ways to tell the story in the space and but it's not it's not showboaty. like i think if if Pakula made this movie now there would be 500 articles online about oh he shot at the bookkeeper's house isn't that amazing and mm-hmm. Pakula's just like yeah shot at the house so what like he just doesn't mm-hmm. there's none of the glamour he's so unglamorous all the glamour's on screen i uh, same thing as
2: i watching the movie again the other night and just looking at yeah, there's no bad wigs. They're not trying to do an accent. Nobody's wearing a fake nose. It's just fucking oh. Robert Redford and <laughs> Dustin Hoffman. And that's it. And, and they're just being movie stars and it made me miss movie stars and how much uh, they can command the screen. And yet, you know, again, to kind of bring up, and yet, you know, the post, Similar movie, similar time period, great director, Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. No one would say they're not both great actors and movie stars. And yet, you know, the degrees between a good or very good movie and a great movie, it, the, the the divide gets so wide, you know, um, when you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, like these two movies, for example, and just trying to pick apart, you know, what does this thing have? Um that it doesn't, and I, I don't quite know the answer. But it, as I said, I think the the actual filmmaking itself was something that I I found so um, so bold and so kind of I don't want to say showy, but maybe because I was watching it, you know, with an eye towards talking about it, um, it it seemed. Uh, it, it just like the the sound design in the movie, the deep focus framing of somebody in the foreground and then people walking through the newsroom in the far background, both completely in focus. Just some of these choices just felt so unconventional compared to the kind of way that most people who would shoot this movie now would shoot it and do coverage. And it just... Maybe it's th- the kind th- of everything th- looks a little bit more like a TV show. And watching <laughs> this, I felt like you know there are choices that feel as as out there as a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. You know, the the fucking clacking of that typewriter is just all the way up in the mix. and some of the, you know the, the shots it just I, the staging of it, that scene that we're talking about in particular you know, the yeah. the way that they're set up in the room and we're following um We're,
0: we're going to go, gonna go yeah. right into that right yeah. now. But I think okay. I think one of the things that you pointed out, which I love is when you're watching this, we, we talk about it and in the modern 2020 parlance, it's always like, it's such a flex too. You see it's such a flex. And I think the Paul Thomas Anderson comparison is, comparison is right is because it's, even in the post, just as a direct comparison, and I really enjoy the movie and Liz Hanna has been a guest on the show. And she's terrific. But when when I watch that movie, there's just something about the balls that you know that Pakula and Willis are setting up these shots and elaborately staging, not just Hoffman walking through the frame and setting up these wide arcing walks that go through the entirety of the whole newsroom. You're setting up about 200 people to just do 200 individual things. And one of those people is Dustin Hoffman, the person who is actually the focal point of your frame. And they're doing that as many times as it takes for it to feel natural. And it's like, there are other movies that you watch now, action movies, huge epics. And some movies you're watching, you're like, are there seven people in this movie? Like, where are the, where are the extras? It's vacant. It's, it doesn't have any life. And, I think that that's one thing where the kind of effortlessness of the life of this movie is you go back into that newsroom. There's not 10 people in shot. There's not 20 people in shot. Sometimes there's 30 people in the shot and it's like 20 of them are completely inconsequential. Another 10 are just hovering through They're The people walking through, they've all got a function. They're all going to get a copy of something. They're all going to talk to someone. There's sometimes there's a great little, I love how you said the typewriter's clacking in the mix. There's some really favorite throwaway lines that are in the mix when you hear people walking through the newsroom. Like one of my favorites is like, is that how you really want to say that? Like you, <laughs> it's just like in the camera panning and the sound panning. It's like, that's a fucking great detail. Like someone has really gone to a, an, an, an incredible length at the time to, to make this feel like a real space. And Not a lot of movies have the money or the inclination to even bother to recreate it. Even Spotlight, great newsroom scenes. But But the team operate in their little bunker and so rarely it seems like the whole newsroom is all there working and clacking at the same time. It doesn't have the same hum. It's like, we'll go into this office, we'll go into this office and we'll investigate. But the life of the whole enterprise doesn't feel there. Yeah, and I don't want to, you know, part.
2: Part of what I'm saying is essentially what I respond to in movies. So I I don't even want to objectively say this is what makes a movie good versus not good. But I will say that in particular, I feel like I respond to a kind of muscular filmmaking where I can feel that there are real choices being made. And the thing that struck me, you know, throughout this movie is scene by scene, you know, almost department by department. There are bold (laughs) choices being made. This was not a movie of like, I don't know, maybe this, maybe that. It was like decisively, you know, are we going to light up this outdoor scene? We are not. You are not going to see the figure in the frame, you know, or this, (laughs) the newsroom and the parking garage are going to kind of have an almost like abstract art feeling of the geometry of these shapes and we're going to create these striking compositions you know among this sort of work a day situation just the the, those two things in
0: conflict it just felt so you know and do you want to have us in a cafe where the planes are flying overhead yes that is a choice it's like if you would Eat, just shoot, just shoot a video. Just shoot a video message between you and your partner at a restaurant anytime, like for a friend's birthday. Waiters interrupting, noise, having to talk louder over other people talking loud while you're talking to the camera, getting distracted. No, we're going to make that choice. We're going to shoot it at the location, and we're going to do every take is going to be different because the planes are going to sound different. You have to either. Take a whole take or you have to throw it away. (laughs) And it's just like, that's a choice. That's a bold choice. It's like, wow. And having to take the sound mix on the day to make sure that it all syncs up perfectly. It's like, God damn, these are choices. Let's watch this minute. This is a good time for us to, uh, we're also going to, we'll take a quick break as well. When we watch the minute to just check if the results of the election have changed in the time that we've been talking, <laughs> Corey and I are watching the 118th minute is one hundred one one hour, 57 minutes on the dial. If you guys are watching, you guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Oh, uh, we
1: didn't miss so much. You didn't know Haldeman had control of the slush, fund. oh yes, we did. It's all in our file. Not about Haldeman. Yeah. Haldeman, John Haldeman. Look, now look, I'm very busy. I got to go. I got to go put the kids to bed. That's the confirmation right there. Wait a minute. Wait a second. Did he say John? He said Haldeman. He said John Haldeman. What the hell difference? He said Isaiah or David. There's only one Haldeman. Yeah, well, Isaiah or David aren't assistant to the president. I don't know. It still feels thin. Well, I wish I knew if we could print this. Oh, wait a minute. You know, we didn't make them do these things, but once they did, they're fair game. All right, let's go over your sources again. I want to hear it. Sloan told the grand jury. He answered everything they asked him. That means there's got to be a record somewhere. He told the grand jury the FBI confirms, what more do you need? Well, I happen to love this country. You know, we're not a bunch of zanies out to bring it down. Harry, weren't you arguing the opposite way? Oh, oh, my no, my right no, I right What have to do with the
0: other? Hold it. We're about to accuse Hall. That's a choice. Just on Bradley, watching all these guys talk, the staging. It's just good. It's just, it's really good.
2: Yeah, I mean, beyond the story that's being told, um, the way that the story is being told is the thing that I respond to so much. And so many movies, you know, that are good or very good, kind of have one of those two things. And it's when you can kind of have those two things working together is what feels like the thing that is so rare and so hard to capture in movies based on true stories. And so when, you know, you get these things that collide, it 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 feels like some kind of miracle because it feels like the <laughs> filmmakers who kind of are interested in bold filmmaking many times are kind of not drawn to this real life material because they're sort of, well, this is what happened, so we have to do this. You know, or we're gonna get shit if we kind of stray too far from the way things happened. And so I think, you know, you're kind of trained to expect a certain type of filmmaking. Um, when it comes to movies like this or movies about serious, important historical subjects. Um, And so, yeah, the scene, the thing that I notice is the staging. And so, you know, you get these kind of wide shots, you know, in the first part of the scene with the phone call with them both, you know, across across the room from each other, you know, a lot of darkness uh, on the one side, you know, he's kind of coming in and out of the doorway. And then you're cutting from that into the newsroom on this tight shot, you know, not with Redford or Hoffman commanding the room, being the hero, taking, you know, taking the <laughs> "This is my moment, but on Bradley. and the way he is revealing each character, where they are in the room, by the way he's pacing around. And it's the kind of thing that seems effortless. And actually, ironically, the the filmmaker who I feel like, does the best job of doing shots like this that you would never notice, but are actually kind of masterful is Steven Spielberg, you know, who, who, who is such a master of blocking and, you know, not a big show off Scorsese tracking shot, but a, you have no idea how much work it takes to tell the story without, you know, being distracting and just have this scene of this guy walking around the room, showing you where everybody is, what their relationship is to each other, having them speak when they're on screen during his pacing—it's—it's <laughs> it's a you know spinning plates level, you know, balancing act, and it, it is effortless.
0: There's two there's two great filmmakers that remind me of one of them. You have I know a special affinity for is this the staging of this shot <clears throat> reminds me, and we talk about people who. Are, are inspired by real life stories but then do their own riffs on them being like someone like paul thomas anderson there's a there's inside one of the homes scenes and i remember um where philip seymour hoffman's master is dancing and he dances and moves through the room and it then starts to register how the people around him are relating to him so you see amy adams and jesse plemons and the the camera is moving and you're all kind of responding from this anchor point um, of freddie quell and joaquin phoenix and it reminds me of this scene a lot because of just the way that it is staged like having this anchored point of view having this very you know this titanic editorial force being bradley registering other people's opinions we are looking through him because right now he is the buck stops with him so it's just just a choice of function like really great dramatic thing but also just the way that they think, okay, we're going to make this choice. So that's going to be how the scene unfolds. And then there's a great scene where Eric Banner is the lead character, Ephraim, and he walks back into the cafe after the first killing in Munich. And he walks into a cafe and you see him sort of stage around in this sort of S shape before he gets there. And then Spielberg has blocked and staged all of the actors so precisely in the screen in the way that they're postured and, how they're sitting in their chairs and the where they're looking at the frame and it's like he's telling you about the inner turmoil of all of these people and the burden of the fact that they've just killed someone all in the way that they're just slumping over their chairs and it's like man there is just a skill set of those directors you know you know that old that old additive like these guys have forgotten more about filmmaking than you'll ever know it's like they're they're just that detail of like i just want them to be like this and i want you to lean this way because this is the way it's going to work when i get to this you know john ford kind of mid shot i want everyone in the frame crisply clear I want to slightly be above you, so I'm sort of, ju- you know, applying my moral judgment, or the people watching, and I want you guys to be reflecting all this in the frame, and that's what I see in this scene. Even though it's super functional, just the way that it happens, and the different personalities, and how they're kind of buoyant or angry, and how the argument's happening, how the the sound is panning in your ears, and if you're watching it with headphones, how it's panning around your cans in your head, on your head, it's like, man, just effortlessness is deeply underrated.
2: Absolutely. And uh, I thought of the same movie earlier when you were talking about Animal Kingdom Corleones, you know, mostly because I've spent my adult life studying the films of Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, but yeah, The Master is an example where there could very easily be a here's the Elron Hubbard biopic. And that movie would not be nearly as interesting as The Master is. Saying let me take as much from real life as I can, but let me try and explore something beyond, you know, one figure, one person, or one idea. You know, it kind of oversimplifies to have to be wedded to reality in that way, you know, most of the time. Um, So, you know, in addition to this kind of being an exception to the rule, all the president's men, the other thing that blows my mind is how, soon after the real events, that this movie came out, (laughs) is is just literally unfathomable. You know, the idea that someone would make, you know, whatever, the uh, current administration, uh, the movie about that in a year, and it would be in any way... And it would be good. That's just... Just In it, yes, valuable, good, worth beyond one viewing. I I cannot fathom <laughs> someone doing that, synthesizing something so recent and doing that. And the example that I kind of another one that sort of disproves, you know, the rule that these usually, you know, don't work as well um, is the social network. It's uh, the, as the it's other all, kind of exception almost, to the
0: rule, it's almost the only one. And it took yeah. two people who were mentees of William Goldman being Fincher and Sorkin working together to make it. And it's like, at, at the time, at the time it felt like it was really pulling no punches and being obviously such an incredible film, just like top to bottom. And now it's like, man, they could have gone so much further.
2: Yeah. Could we, have didn't, gone. we
0: didn't know we how know. innocent we were back then in, in we just 2010. Thought, we just thought someone got caught up with, you know the the corruption and and being consumed in a very almost like citizen Kane level like you know stripping all the elements of his life away to kind of be the towering figure um and and rewriting his own history like printing the legend of himself essentially because he's now in social media but yeah that's the that's the other one where it just i can't even understand it like the fact that they're, they're like why is he writing about this why, why would, why would Sorkin want to write a script about Completely. this? Why would Fincher want to
2: make this? Yeah. It didn't make any sense. Um, and, and as you bring up the other kind of, um, Citizen Kane could have made the Hearst movie, but <laughs> yeah. you know, what's more interesting take from real life and tell your own story, you know, most of the time, uh, and social network. Yeah. I, um, uh, went to the world premiere of that at the oh New York God. film festival in 2010. Um, and it was, you know, blew, blew my mind. Um, I actually that night, um, sort of snuck into the after party, which was at the Harvard (laughs) club in New York. I had a friend who was like at the ticket table and like gave us passes. So after the screening, we went home, we put on a suit and we went there and we're walking around the room of basically like my filmmaking heroes. There's david fincher there's wes anderson there's noah Baumbach, there's darren Aronofsky, you know whatever it was just like everywhere you went my wife got to talk to justin timberlake it was like kind of a insane surreal you know sidebar but um anyway yeah so social network um how how it works as well as it does and boy would it be interesting for them to do a follow-up
0: yeah uh... I would give anything for that. But it's but that's that's also a question and it hasn't <clears throat> I feel like I harped on it in maybe like 40 episodes of this show, but it still continues to come around because as we're sort of getting to the the business end, so much of you know what's been happening in politics right now is sort of being rendered in this moment and this tirelessness of a pursuit and trying to get the truth and being ready to say things and you know they're true, but having the sources to do it. But yeah, I I I cannot even understand that this story technically ends and and the t- teletape or the ticket tape at the end of this movie says 1974 and it is competing for Oscars in 76. Insane. And it's like, it's like, that's absolutely ludicrous that, that this could be out and they're making it in 75. It's like, that's, that's a really, I don't know if that could ever happen again. Because like, for example, I think what was that? There's, there's the, is it, Brendan Gleeson Trump TV show thing, the Comey rule or something like that. When you see, I don't know what it is, whether it's time or whatever. I just really wonder if people at the time heard they were making President's Men into a film and were like, ugh, the Comey rule? Like, I wonder if they had the same reaction just hearing about its existence as we do now with something like that. It's like, oh, this is going to be a stunt. I think the news in... So different. You had the evening news.
2: You had the newspaper, you know, or two. Yes. And that was your exposure. And I wonder how many people, you know, the same way towards the end of the movie, it's like, you know, Bradley's telling them, you know, what is it, forty, only forty percent of the country or whatever has even heard of the word Watergate before. It's basically like, yeah, you guys are writing these stories, but like, it's not getting through to people. You know, I I wonder what role this movie played in Watergate um, being as Big of a historical event as it is, and how much of kind of the print the legend of um, you know follow the money invented for the movie, you know how, how much of the story of this is this is the way uh, that we want this history to be told um, was cemented in the public's minds, you know through this movie, and 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 how much of me growing up, you know, born in the '80s after these events in America and kind of getting the high level bits of, you know, Nixon, corruption, Watergate scandal, um, were, you know, in part because of this movie or you in Australia. I mean, the other interesting thing is just going, I can't imagine one of my favorite movies being about Australian politics. (laughs) So
0: interesting that the reverse, you know, well, this is what I would say. There's, um, there are great Australian political stories and they just never get told into movies because my uh, big gripe with Australian cinema for about two decades is that, um, uh, and, and and I'm not the first to say this by any stretch of the imagination, is that we just got obsessed with telling stories about two heroin addicts in love and one of them dies. Like, who fucking cares? Like, no, I'm right. sorry. I'm sorry to be so uh, uh, forthright with that opinion, but I'm like, give me the Mad Maxes. I want the Gallipolis. I want picnics at Hanging Rocks. I want walkabouts. That's what I want. Like like uh, jo- g- phenomenal genre movies that have a voice, um, a, a voice uh, you know anchored into contemporary issues and rendering them in different creative ways to sort of provide a commentary is like really the best cinema that Australia can do. And I think that we we probably play bleak and crazy, um, you know, sometimes and 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 no happy endings is kind of something that we do. I think really terrifically well um, across the board. And there are some amazing political stories um, that, that, you know, that haven't been told. There was a, and I, I like to tell this because I know that we might have some new listeners listening to this f- for you, Corey. So if this is the first episode of All the President's Minutes, welcome. Um, the, there's an Australian Prime Minister named Harold Holt who went for a swim off a beach during his time as Prime Minister and disappeared off the face of earth. Gone. Where's that movie? That's what I'm saying to all Australian filmmakers. Anyways, listen, where's that movie? I want the movie that has his office, like just the the next 24 hours of when a prime minister disappears, like what weird theories go on, what, you know, what, like, give me the Zodiac of that. Like, I want to know, I want to know every person. I want to interview every person. I want to talk to everyone who was ever in those offices. I want every version of it, like, because if an American president went for a swim, And disappeared off the face of the earth. Do you reckon we'd ever stop talking about it? (laughs) No. (laughs) And some people don't even know that. Some Australians don't even know that. And I know it's probably a bit of a dark time because it was probably a a great tragedy. And look, in Australia, there are oceans and there are sharks and there are people who get bumped on the head by a surfboard or whatever the case may be, and people can drown or whatever. Like there's all the you know the the simplest and most logical thing, but yeah, I this movie for me and why it has such a deep effect on me is um, because it snuck up on me. You know, I was an auteur guy too and looking at the same list you are. And then for me, the things exactly, I think in in much the same way as you is there's an effortlessness. There are choices being made. There's a bold thing. And I've watched so many of those auteurist films and there's something about this movie that is like, you know, it's like a Swiss watch. It's like both creative and florid and beautiful and impressionistic, but then it's like a Swiss watch. And it's just like those two things happening at the same time. There's something magical. It doesn't really, the, the politics of it don't matter. It's that tirelessness of a pursuit, Um, you know, much as the same as the, you know, one of our future projects, which is like Zodiac, That it's the, it's the tirelessness of a pursuit. And so I know so a few people have asked me like, why this movie? And I'm like, because it's so good. Like, I, I just, I can't tell you how good it is. You have to watch it. I, it is worth the scrutiny of every minute. It, that's, that's why. It's not The Godfather. It's maybe not those things that are at the top of that list, or it's not Citizen Kane. But man, it's doing all those things. It's doing all those things that those great films do. Everything, every choice is right there on screen.
2: Absolutely. And it's overcoming the kind of barrier of, this isn't a part of your country's history. And Not yet it. the kind of way in which this story is told and that the fact that the story itself is emblematic of such larger universal themes is why, you know, someone on the other side of the planet, you know, <laughs> can can be as interested and obsessed as someone who grew up in this country as part of our kind of own legend, you know, um, and just, you know, watching it a couple days ago, taking kind of a a a different view of man remember when um things mattered remember when (laughs) you know powerful could be held to account and when there was gravity and actions had consequences and how depressing is that that this movie you know in its way is so idealistic about you know the smallest um actions can make the biggest difference and 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 the kind of pursuit of this you know, these kind of noble themes and and truth and all this can, can have this effect. And, um, you know, watching it a few nights ago, it was sort of sad, you know, in the current state of things. Um, but, you know, with the tide maybe turned just a bit, it feels different. You know, it, it feels again, like, you know, if things, you know, don't swing quite as, dramatically as you hope, and maybe it's a game of inches or it's incremental, just that you know the the work of pointing the future just a degree or two in the in the the right direction can make all the difference down the line and and the reverberations and the kind of impact, you know, even if it's not as radical and and as immediate as you might hope sometimes, um can can still make the difference. And so it's, you know, even within the span of 48 hours, feeling differently about what this movie says uh, and what it means to me in this moment that everybody is living in right now.
0: I don't think there's a better way to end the episode than that. Other than to say, I just hope that some of my American friends, yourself included, when the Australian election rolls around, um, are willing to stay up three or four nights, Talking about, you know, talking about Australian liberals who are conservatives in the Australian Labor Party and does Anthony Albanese, who's the the shadow minister, the the guy who'd be going to competing for the prime ministership, does he have it, you know, lots of really in-depth conversations analyzing, okay, well, let's talk about New South Wales. What's the vote standing in New South Wales? What's Queensland doing? I really, I really am hoping that it can be as fun flipping it on the other side of the world, maybe some you know twenty four hour parties that can happen at the same time uh, when when it eventually rolls around because I can certainly tell you i've it's been an unstoppable conversation in Australia over the last little bit and uh, I think the entire world is having um is is on a nice edge with your election which is as you said that one degree people I think right now the importance of that one degree turn is 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 more profound because you can literally feel it in the energy of the world like we're all don't look at your screen time right now don't don't look at your screen time report for this week just abandon it it's an anomaly things will go back to some semblance of normal but oh man i you know it's uh it's a great time and i look mate thank you so much for being a part of the show um you um, you're you're a, you're a champion of the cinephilia and the community as much as anything and uh, i'm i'm so grateful to know you and grateful to have been part of some of the cool charitable things you guys have been doing this year and uh, thank you so much for just being part of this experience with me as well thanks for having me it's been great That was the incredibly lovely Corey Everett. I'm so thankful to have had him on the show. Um, if you want to find Corey, at Modage, M O D A G E, is where you can find him personally tweeting on Twitter. But otherwise, you can follow him at, at Cinephile Game or at Lil Cinephile for the book A for Auteur. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Cinephilegame.com is where you can find everything that he's doing. Um, you can also go back through this very feed. Type in Corey's name in your search bar. You will find him talking to Travis Woods about all things PTA and all things um, Inherent Vice, uh, which he feels uh, more qualified for. I mean, the guy wrote at Cigarettes and Red Vines, um, you know, the pta fan site of course he's going to be more familiar with him than this i'm so appreciative of his incredible and just in-depth cinematic mind it was such a great treat to talk to him guys if you want to follow the show at atpm pod is where you can follow oneheatminute.com you can find me on socials at one blake minute on twitter and instagram and if you have a little bit of extra cash to help support the show patreon forward slash one Heat minute a bonus show every single week we'll catch you on another episode very very soon